From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on Business Radio, Sirius XM Business Radio. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning, this afternoon that is, with Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner, statistic professors, longtime collaborators, my co-host here at Wharton Moneyball for nine plus years. We're on the other side of nine years. Our fourth co-host, Eric Bradlow, is away doing Eric Bradlow things this week. He will be back. We are set up for a couple of guests mid-show, Q's two and three. We are going to have open lines, open topics here in Q1 and Q4. We've got some very important topics to cover. My sense, I've got my guys here chomping at the bit. The old phrase, chomping at the bit. we got a couple of guys in the corral here in the barn chomping at the bit. Can you keep going? Carrying these like horse analogies through the entire <laughs> <episodes or anything. laughs> I, I work on it, Shane. I All know, right. I know horse right. racing is your favorite. Yeah, your favorite no, that's topic. right. That's right. All right. We uh, let's just dive in, gentlemen. We've got um, my understanding is that they start playing baseball for real. Yeah. For, for the real. Well, they, they were already playing baseball for real in the World Baseball Classic. Yeah. But this is for real, for real. For real, for real. I actually went to a spring training game. For the very first time in the home ballpark of the Oakland A's, so I guess in San Francisco, Oakland area, they they start their spring training. They conclude their spring training in their actual parks. They don't okay. do that at other places. And is Oakland still in the old Oakland Stadium? That's yeah. so controversial. Yeah, the Coliseum. And, the okay. Coliseum. Um, it actually I, it was it was a fun day because it was easy to get to, easy to get tickets, easy to park. I bribed the guy because I came an hour late. He took ten dollars in cash instead of the thirty dollar credit. Amount that was great, <laughs> scandalous, Adi. Scandalous. scandalous. Um, but you just walk in; it was beautiful game, beautiful, beautiful day. Um, uh, Giants pretty much clobbered them, um, but it was my first chance to see the, the the quick pace of the game, and it's just a delight, mm-hmm. really. So, so this was something that Matty Dats reported to us from his adventure in spring training. Tell us your experience as a, spe- a, a fan, a spectator with the new clock. Well, basically, you don't have this interminable time between pitches. I was it was averaging over thirty seconds, and now it's twenty seconds is the maximum. But they typically do you know a little less than that. I mean, uh, so they're averaging I think substantially less than twenty seconds. Is it almost jarring? Is it? Is it? Is you feel it kind of bumping up against you on a, throughout? Because you're not accustomed to that, right? I, well, I mean, this is what it was when I was a kid. I was watching on, <laughs> I was watching on TV. It, it's going to take me a little getting used to because you know, I, you I know, agree. the bathroom breaks I would take or like how focused well, I have to be. You kind of have to keep up with it more. I mean, that's not a bad thing for a sport that you actually have to. I'll tell they you designed this. it so they have to pay attention more closely. Just, but that is something I'm experiencing. I follow that at the stadium. It's fantastic because the stadium you're watching the game and there really isn't. That's the point. But when you're home, I suppose and I haven't experienced this yet because I'm not really watching spring training games. Um, when you're home, when you have your computer open, you have a book open, it, then it might be a little jarring because you can't you can't multitask that easily. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one right. of my favorite aspects of baseball. Perhaps maybe one of the reasons why I like to engage with, with so many games individually across the season is because I, I multitask through them. You can't multitask through football. I watched every every Eagles game this year. It's interesting. I wouldn't have known that just that 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 slack that exists in the way they've played baseball over the last few years. That slack is what it makes it so amenable to multitasking. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. I still manage to multitask. I mean, also just the frequency of things actually happening. I think you can still multitask even with um, sure pace, but can, it is going to be an adjustment mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to that. 
Um, what were you, what you didn't go out there to watch baseball in Oakland? No, of course not. It just turns out I had a free afternoon, and uh, I met the uh, the head of operations there the day before at a dinner, and he said, "Come on by." So I did. Great. <laughs> um, well, the opening day is on Thursday. I mm-hmm. assume that's a small opening day. No, Everybody. no, they're rolling it out full uh, full throttle. Right. It's uh, okay. fifteen games, all thirty teams. Wow, Yanks are starting. And there's, the they're Giants. starting with interleague. I yes, mean, it's crazy. That's the, the more thing. Ba- the, again. There's more. There's more. More balance. Another part of the major changes this season is a much more balanced schedule. Okay, so when, when you say that, my first thought was that they went away from this heavily disproportionately within division, not just within yes. within league, but within division. Now they're slacking on that, but is it also changing the amount of interleague? Yes, play? yeah, yeah. So basically, now there's a reduced number of in division games, and within within league, you play basically a home and away against every other non division team, and you also play one series against every team in the other league. Okay, and so you can't it's home or away. So over two years, it's probably balanced home and away. Exactly, yeah, okay. exactly. Got can't it. stand it. You can't stand it. Arr, I'm a traditionalist. You like the, you like the ba- unbalanced I like, schedules? No, I no. I like the I like the balance within the league and within the divisions. I think that's fantastic. If it was not fair in some sense to the American League East, where For everybody sure. was terrific and they they played each other a lot, making other leagues have an advantage against them. Divisions have an advantage. But I guess as a traditionalist, I like the idea that there's really two sports going on. There's National League but, and American but League. You and lost that dislike. I lost it. that bout. I a certainly long time agree. Ago. A long time ago. But, now, this, but this, this year, it really is extensive. I mean, yeah, because they're playing the Giants, and the next week they're playing the Phillies. I mean, what the? You know, this is not baseball. The Yankees play the Red Sox and the Tigers. Yeah, I'd and... much rather see the <laughs> like see the Tampa Bay Rays seventeen times a season. No, I don't than like have that. Have the Phillies see Otani or like something like you know? I mean, yeah, like, or... that's true. But, but like having I, Otani come to town so, so, this year. So, so give me a sense. So, they assume, presumably, are they fifteen and fifteen across the divisions across the league? Yeah. Okay, so they've got fifteen. Series, so maybe 45 games mm-hmm. across leagues. 45 out of 162, so more than a quarter. Approximately yes. yep. a quarter of their games are interleague play. Yep. Got it. Okay. And then what's the change in the within division? How much did they used to be? And now, cause it, it used to be 19, and now it's 7-7 seven and seven in the division. 7 home, 7 away. So it's 14, it from 19 down to 14. In the okay, division, so, a little, so uh, yeah, but outside of the division is going to have to take up probably substantially, still substantially less. Three and three, three and three, yeah, still a lot. It's still pretty small. Well, that's with outside the division within the league. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, yeah. Well, uh, so I'm it, excited for. It. I, so, I, so I like twelve and twelve. She had yeah. another positive result, and I think the only re- real reason to oppose that kind of thing is that. Again, as you're just opposed to change. If you're yeah, like kind of yeah. an old school baseball <laughs> yeah, fan, opposed to change, opposed to change, okay, resist but, but, change. But Adi, even things that could use some fixing. But Adi has <laughs> used some fixing. I like that. That sounds southern of you. Yeah, Jim. use some fixing. So, but Adi has shown some openness to some of these innovations, these rule innovations yeah. in recent years. Like the he's pitch- not. But but I mean, you know, you're also a traditionalist on the whole umpire robo ump thing. Right? I don't. Okay, so I'm not. I mean, Robo Ump to me is not something I'm gonna. It's not a hill I'll die on, to use an expression. Mm-hmm. I, I think it has some challenges in the sense that I think that the league isn't the players both on both sides of the ball, um, pitching and 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 hitting, are going to find an actual strike zone rather confounding because they don't actually play with the actual confounding. So maybe if they adjust the Robo Ump to match what actually is called, well, that's what they should do. Yeah. yeah, and I mean even with the adjustment, I mean I think the main strength of the Robo Umps is not so much 
It's going to be consistent the entire game. It's going to be the exact... Yes, whatever the will. strike zone is, it's going to be the exact same. It's not going to be Angel Hernandez deciding, like, you know, pitch by pitch what the strike zone is and just varying it by right, a right. foot. So it's it's tempting to point to the Angel Hernandez's and the ilk to say yeah. that the current system is broken. On the other hand, the current system, accepting craziness, um, is actually kind of entertaining. The idea that there there is a, a, a little bit of uncertainty, and that makes you kind of wonder. I mean, there's nothing... There's it, it To me, it's also part of the game. So now you have your value of the the conservative mm. traditionalist ideas that this is just part of the game and and that it makes it interesting and part of the entertainment factor. So I as a football I, fan, okay, do you enjoy refs blowing big calls as entertaining? <laughs> well, you know, you have to rec- That's more inherently part of the game because it's harder to actually automate. Well, that, hold on but- a minute, hold on a minute. So right, right. So the the real question is um how frequently do does a blown strike call or blown ball, whatever it is at the plate, really affect the outcome? I mean, and it can't be just tiny, right? I'm not talking about something that could have gone either way, but like a real blown call. And I think that's probably what you're thinking about in football, mm-hmm. when when they actually completely blow it, you know, yep. screw it up. And to me, that doesn't happen very often. When there's Disagree. a Disagree. It happens all the time <laughs> uh, well. that a really bad strike call, like, ends a game. Happens all the time. It's also it feels even just a little bit of that feels inexcusable. When that's when that's it something that is egregious. completely automatable. I mean, yeah. I, again, we're still going to have umpire. They're still going to be employed. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not cutting jobs here. They're still going to need to bang bang calls at like home play. They're still going to have a role that is not currently automatable. But why not take something where they have a lot of you know arbitrary influence and no transparency, no accountability, <laughs> and remove it. As a task, because it is fully well, well, let's go back to that. Why don't we just in- introduce some accountability? They're well, right because, now because we can't. I mean, they, you know, they I, mean, have, I, I, have... I, I, I think you've lo- I, I, I assume that there's been attempts to introduce accountability for the last hundred years of base. It's not like they're like, oh, no, well, but they have. They have. And if you look, it's actually remar- some remarkable data on learning is how much the accuracy of umpire calls at the pitch have improved. Ball they improved once we got the technology that they could review their performance after each game. I mean, yeah. it's like it's cruising along flat. That technology comes. Those are in. all from the minor league kind of no, studies, these, right? These are major league baseball studies, and they just they just they just on the forty five degree yeah. angle start going up in accuracy when the technology comes in. Because I've seen a lot of the minor league umpires definitely respond very well to kind of the has, but that's a confound. You know, the minor league umpires are actually incentivized to, to get better. Major League, um, part, well, like Angel Hernandez, really has certainly not changed over time, but, and we're not introducing accountability. I mean, he's still doing things like the World Series, even though he's unambiguously known to be terrible. Yep. When was the Empire Union strike? What, 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 that's from our childhood. There was some. There was one. It was a long time ago. And my understanding is, how do they? Why can't we just replace them? <laughs> I mean, right. What's the big deal? <laughs> unions, yeah. man. You, you can't. You can't just go throwing unions out. No. Yeah. And I mean, I guess probably you know. Replacing them with humans that are probably—I mean, at least some of the umpires at the major league baseball level are probably the elitist that we can be as humans at doing this task. You know, assuming the ones that really are trying hard to do the task properly, mm-hmm. but that's still not going to be as good as a computer doing. Did that. y'all see that call that from that minor college game a couple of weeks ago that were so, was so egregious that it yes. was like leading oh, yeah. ESPN? The guy got suspended. I mean, yes. that was really something. Did we did we ever hear the backstory on why he was so so committed to getting calling that guy out on strikes? Cuz I think there's a lot of them, you know, they're just, you know, they're they're kind of the cops of the baseball diamond too and they don't like their authority question. I mean, Real Muto just got thrown out. First time he's ever been thrown out a game. For, you know, in a spring ever, training game no In less. a spring training game because what was there was it? some like it, it was like 
He took I, his he, the minute he did the, the, he was the, the ball. like or... was trying to hand him a new ball to throw in, and somehow Miro Montal dropped his glove. There was like a miscommunication, and the umpire took him princi- uh, personally and just tossed him. <laughs> it was it was crazy. <laughs> it's okay. a, and I mean, okay. By the way, speaking of misbehaving pitchers, even though this fellow wasn't misbehaving, what has happened with the? Increased scrutiny to doctoring the ball because that was the big story. Like, Couple two, years two ago, two years yeah. ago, yeah. I think yeah. it was. And yeah, you know, they, cert- they started searching the, players and yeah, looking at their belts. And I think they're and still doing the that. I think, I, think they're, so. I think they still have that kind of coming off the mound hand check that they're still. I, I think that's but it's still just happening. become routine. Yeah. It's not as controversial anymore. Presumably, there's less doctoring of the ball as a result. I mean, you'd have to ask. Uh, I mean, when that happened two years ago, we thought there was actually degradation yeah. in some pitchers' performance. Sure, sure. Like yeah, no, 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 no. Spin I mean, rate I mean, was lower. It definitely, it definitely helped some pitchers. Um, but either they've become, you know, I mean, I think either they've, maybe nobody's using it anymore. Maybe they're using it more subtly. Or maybe they've moved on to some new way to get an ed- edge developed. By the Astros organization, you know, to like, you know, well, what's the next level, right? You know, <laughs> well, to the... be fair, the Astros on that particular front, the Astros were league leading in developing technology to help pitchers actually improve their performance. Yes, using these cameras and techniques. Like, no, that's le- right. Le- and then, yeah, legally. this this part was kind of you know the borderline. I, I have of, to yeah, say, yeah, part so of I'm that. gonna I'm gonna this is great. This is a great opening here because I've been reading this biography of Sandy Koufax, Jane Levy. Oh, wonderful. And. uh what struck me just reading about this, his trajectory as a pitcher was two things. First of all, he didn't really play baseball until college. He didn't get, there was no draft at that time, but okay. didn't wasn't a considered player coming out of high school. He okay. was a basketball player. Was he? A, a pretty good one, not recognized because he wasn't, you know, extraordinary. Um, real, real quickly, small boast. I've actually stood next to Sandy Koufax. He's one of the only real legends I've been around. He was older, but he I, he, I felt like he was like my size, like maybe probably shorter than me. And well, I'm, I'm like, he, I'm 6'1". Basically. So he's 6'2". Um, okay, so it's definitely older. List, he's, listed, he's shrunk a little bit. Listed as he's in his 80s now. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, it just seems like a, a, um, almost a mirac- miraculous human being because he just threw this way okay. it wasn't wasn't learned the way we describe a modern day pay, player the way you describe in the astros where they build and they build and with weighted balls yeah. and training mm-hmm. and training and training and technique and biomechanics and and high pitch cameras high go up above he just was just doing this okay so real quickly odd I, I mean can we throw a computer vision on tape of him Throwing back in the '60s and get yes. a sense of and, why. And, and, and well, this is uh, there. There was a couple of quotes early on in, in the book that he's got perfect mechanics, but he took a while to get there, right? So, a, a couple of things they point to is sort of freakishly long hands, extremely powerful back, just a um, just a natural technique, and it's also not clear how hard he was throwing. I mean, people were reporting that he threw harder than anyone had ever seen at the time. Um, but I'll t- throw in two other facts. It took him a years to get better. The first five years of his career were essentially nothing. But I, I always wondered about that. Um, two facts I c- came up. Uh, first of all, he was one of the first pitchers to work with a statistician. That really? blew me away. He, really? Uh, the uh, the Dodgers had hired a, a statistician who charted every one of his pitches. Huh. And he would discuss what... what are, That's the kind of statistician job I could do. Yeah. 
Well, you sit there, you chart every picture, every out, and he would, and they looked for patterns. These are the things, are the things that work. These are the things that don't work. And he, he, it took that. So it's not like high high tech biomechanics uh, st- uh, analytics, but it was the first round pass of analytics mm-hmm. was just to look at the counting data yeah. and, and figure out what 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 is the best approach to get someone out. So he was one of the first people to do that. The second thing he did, which was which was really not not he him doing, but it was the he was what's called a bonus baby which is, I never heard of this, but before there was a draft, in order to get signed, they would just give you a, they would just pay you to be, and then once you're with that team, you're there forever until they trade you because of the reserve clause. So the, the, only, agency. the only leverage you had to get whatever you thought you were worth was your very first deal. That's yeah. it. Once you're signed, you're basically stuck. Remarkable. So the owners instituted a system to basically to, uh, screw the players. What was it? If you were paid more than $20,000, this is probably changing by the year, but in the year he was signed in 55, it was $20,000, you were considered what's called a bonus baby, which meant that you had to be on the Major League roster for two years. So if you got that much money or more, and, and Kopax got more than that, you couldn't play in the minors. You had to be on the Major League roster, which was a terrible thing for the development of the player. Why would the owners want that? Because they wanted the teams to very, very, very reluctantly do it. Oh. And they wanted the players to have a, an incentive not to do it. And it hurt Sandy Koufax terribly. I see. Because he couldn't develop. The guy had played one year at the University of Cincinnati. That's it. Never a day in the minors. Huh. At 19 years old, he's, he's on the Dodgers staff. Useless. <laughs> he couldn't control. He, could, he had no control. Wow. And he couldn't basically play for two years. How was he? How, how, you say he, he, was, he wasn't drafted. He played. So how, well, how there wasn't the a draft. The draft came about. Uh, how did the Dodgers best. acquire him? Find him? Acquire him? Well, you know, he was from Brooklyn. He just showed up at a. He just essentially showed up at a, an open tryout. Huh. And he, a couple teams um, showed interest in him. Okay, um, but this is this is that's this how is, they did it. There were then. open tryouts back then, is what yes, you're telling me. Yes. In the fifties, well, they would play. There, first of all, there's a couple of things. First of all, there was serious high level um, professional ball outside of the major leagues and the minors. There were incredible numbers of independent baseball teams. So a guy like uh, DiMaggio, when he was noticed, he played for you know the Seals of San Francisco, um, the the Pacific Coast League, big you know professional league, but not the majors. So there were lots of opportunities for them to play professional balls, but Sandy Koufax didn't. He didn't do any of that. Mm-hmm. No professional ball until the majors. Mm-hmm. Not a day. It's <laughs> amazing. Amazing. All right. Tell us more about Sandy Koufax. I could hear about this guy Well, forever. I mean, when you say perfect mechanics, too, well, not clear perfect he got mechanics there, for but performance, later. Yeah. not for robustness. Because oh, no. obviously he's famous for well, having this incredible peak but yeah, not being yeah, able get, to sustain it. Characterize his major league career for It's us. very simple. 11 years. Five years um, not, either not playing much at all the first couple or playing at a average rate okay. with lots of walks and uh, lots and lots of super high quality starts, but also some not so high quality starts. Okay. Back in that day, how many starts did a guy have in a season? Uh, uh, a starter every day was over 40. Okay. And we're, we're not now at 32. So Drysdale, who was the star pitcher for the, the Dodgers, had 40 or 42. And of those 40, how often would they throw a complete game? A good oh, pitcher. 2025. Yeah, yeah, about yeah. two thirds of them. I've actually got a kind of a fun modern <laughs> they, statistic yeah. uh, for complete games. Have you guys ever heard of the Amatics? Stat, said, like a, a stat, stat called Amatics? Uh, yeah. Hold um, on, let's can, guess what the stat called. Yeah. I would have thought it would be control related. but It is, it's indirectly. Like a, how much? How, no, it's just laid on us. A static, Amatics is when a pitcher throws a shutout of nine or more innings with fewer than 100 pitches. 
Oh, I see. It's named after Greg Maddis because he has the most binding player. He has had 13 uh-huh. of those type games. But they're rare, and they're increasingly because, rare uh, now. Well, it's than hard they to used do to if be. you're a strikeout pitcher because a strikeout pitcher uses a few more pitches to get people out than a non-strikeout. Because people pitcher. are because Maddox was mm-hmm. not afraid of contact. He would no. just get, keep the ball over the plate, keep it down or whatever. Yes. Yep. And uh, and so that's an easier way to do it. I mean, uh, the how, how many shutouts did he have that were over 100 pitches? Oh, I just uh, I, I that weren't Maddox's. Yeah, uh, probably at least twice that. I would guess. Nine Just because 100 pitches Nine is like, shutouts. Yeah. So to getting back okay. to Kofax, so what made Kofax so particularly amazing but, is... But hold on, you described his first five years, you didn't tell us what well, happened I, after that. So what ended up happening was he showed incredible flashes of brilliance, but he really wasn't played that much. That, and he never really became a full-time starter until his fifth or sixth year. Okay. Which is kind of nutty. Um, that the that the that the the management remember he was really young right so hey, say real quickly these days half of a major league roster is pitchers yeah I mean, I mean, if he was guys. starting at nineteen those first five years I mean a normal modern player would also not have played much for the major league team in those first five years right. either so that's not unusual except that's he was right. taking up but a he spot was taking up a roster. spot in the major league right, team right 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 but I guess in, accumulating... terms of, in terms of his accumulated career stats right. and performance he, he, it's not he was playing unusual. in the majors and and majors a little better than the minors he so wasn't he, getting the reps. And he wasn't getting the reps that was the real issue in the first three years he basically barely played pitched at all. And that's the that's the, okay. that's the here's a good but, stat. Here, here's a fun one. After the Dodgers won the World Series in 1955, where he was on the roster and basically didn't play, you know where he went right after that? To Columbia University, where he was getting a degree to take his class to go to a class. Huh. And, he, and in fact, he asked the professor if he could leave early to go to the party. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, Imagine that. <laughs> but just remind us what he did in the subsequent six years that made him a Hall of Famer. Uh, well, it pre- probably had the the best five years, consecutive five years of any pitcher who has ever had ever in Major League ba- Baseball. Five years, average at ERA. least best five years until Pedro. Well, no. So if you if you adjust Pedro, you have to adjust for the fact that Pedro worked pitched in the in the crazy steroid era. So Pedro's years are terrific, adjusted for that. But if you actually just do raw five years, just raw by, plain, by what metrics? By you stand you always strike out. Of course you do. For error in this but, calculation. But for, for the so moment, let, let's just let's go just, wrong. What, go. By what so, metrics? Uh, ERA, um, strikeouts, complete games, shutouts, numbers of amazing games, just dominance. Mm-hmm. Absolute mm-hmm. dominance. He was the dominant pitcher for five years. And each of those five seasons could have been the best five seasons all time, and bit. then he walked away while he was still quite. Well, he was around good. thirty. He just left early. He just couldn't. Pit. He, he said, "I'm going to lose injuries. I'm going mean, to doing... use." No, he was still pitching. He said, "I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose the use of my arm." Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we'd have any way to, to fix these ligaments, right? So, you you just pitch through it. Hmm. <laughs> he's like, "I'm not going to be able to do this and still have the use of my arm." Hmm. I'm going to. Yeah. So, I mean, he retired due to injury. So he's actually very interesting because he's someone who. There's a, usually to get in the Hall of Fame, you have to have two things, which is some kind of longevity and and peak quality. He absolutely did not have longevity. Yeah. No, I mean I think if you're top five peak all time, it doesn't yes. matter what longevity is because Pedro is another example. I, I mean, was, I was going to ask of, for another top five top five peaks all time, but not having the longevity to justify. Okay. And you contrast those with somebody like Mike Messina. So Mike Messina and Pedro Martinez actually have Opposites. pretty similar war va- like total war values. Achieved very different ways. You know, Pedro had this amazing peak, but did not pitch for as many years. Mike Messina was just kind of one of the most consistent number two pitchers of all time, basically. For like 17 years in a row, he basically did the exact same thing. Who are other canonical examples of got there via peak, but not longevity? 
Bob Gibson. I mean, mostly pitchers, right? Yeah, you typically would see this. I don't think you can do it on the hitting side. I mean, we talked about Mike Trout, for example. Like, if Mike Trout retired tomorrow, would he be a major? Would he be a Hall of Famer? Yes. I think we all consensusly agree. Yeah. Because his peakdom has been so strong yeah, yeah, for. Yeah. But he he didn't have a burning period. Mike Trout no, I mean, started, I, I think it's it is certainly you know. the case that you know it's less likely. You know, most of the kind of. Big, um, you know, amazing peak, but no longevity is pitchers because they're more the ones more likely to have a career, a really career shortened kind of injury sort of right. situation. You know, I mean, Bo Jackson, if he could have played baseball Jackson, for like right. 15 years, maybe would have, you know, who okay. knows? If he right? got another but, couple years before being injured. He was just so, but his numbers were never anything. They were, he was he just, just so did, fun to watch. He just did some exciting said, things. Yeah. Okay, before we're going to have to leave, but before we do, I want to touch base on on Shane's where he is on the Red Sox because the Red Sox are this incredible roller coaster team yeah. and he's sitting here you know week of the season opening games and he's beaming and he's excited he's wearing his socks hat as always what is your expectation for this team um I expect them to finish last in the AL East this year <laughs> I would love to be surprised, and as you pointed out, they often are a team that can surprise. I mean, there's stuff. I, I mean, I'm excited for individual things. I'm super excited for this uh, Matsu, Matsutaki Yoshida, who's our new uh, left fielder for the Red Sox. He was one of the sort of standout all stars of the World Baseball Classic that they just signed. So I'm excited for you know particular players like him. But you know, I, I don't. I, I just don't feel like the Red Sox to stand up against the. Uh, Best of the AL East, which is like which three, is like three, all the other three teams. or four teams. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, I de- you know, I would be shocked if they finished higher than the Yankees or Blue Jays. Maybe they can get ahead of like the Orioles or Rays, okay. but there, I, I again, I would be very pleasantly surprised if they ended up being a contender. Okay. That can happen, though. They've done it before. Okay. Well, we'll we've got some more baseball coming up. Our our guest in Q two is Scott Power. Scott used to be the assistant general manager for the Houston Astros. So I think we've got some more baseball coming up next quarter. Come back and join us for that after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM Business Radio, Huntsman Hall, the Business Radio Studio in Huntsman Hall. We're in person. Shane is to my right. Adi straight away. This is Cade Massey. The Eric Bradlow chair is empty. We miss Eric this week. He'll be back. He's out doing Eric things. We are delighted to welcome onto the show now for the first time, and I suspect not the last time. Scott Powers. Scott is. Assistant Professor of Sports Analytics at Rice University. Brand new position, brand new position for him, but also the university, giving a tenure-track slot to sports analytics. It's in the School of Social Sciences down there. Scott was most recently the Assistant General Manager of the Houston Astros. That would be the 2022 World Series champion, Houston Astros. Before that, analytics and research with the Dodgers for four or five years. Scott is a statistician by training He's done undergrad in stats. He's done master's in stats. He's done Ph.D. in stats, three different fantastic universities. We are delighted to have him on the show here for the first time. Scott, afternoon. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks, Caden. Glad to be here. Doug Caring wanted me to say hello. Well, we, we, we got to see Doug in, in Boston a couple of weeks ago. I'm always glad for the chance to visit with him. Scott is working with Zealous on a part-time basis, Zealous Analytics. That's the group that, that, that Doug runs 
We've had a number of their employees, managers, leaders, statisticians on the show over the years. Zealous, one of the top sports analytics groups out there, unquestionably. So, Scott, congratulations on that position. You're you're throwing together a nice mix of jobs here, man. Working for uh, World Series winning teams, um, pulling down an academic job, doing consulting with the best organization out there. That's pretty good, Scott. That's pretty good. What would you say your calling card is in the world of sports analytics? What's what's the edge you bring to the table most often? I'm sure you bring more than one, but like, what's the thing that Scott Powers brings to the table as a statistician? I've always thought that there are three primary areas of application of sport analytics. First, it's player evaluation. Second, it's player development. And third, it's in-game strategy. For me personally, my bread and butter is player evaluation and projections. That's what I was really passionate about when I was in school and what a lot of my work focused on when I worked with teams. Mm-hmm. Is that mostly at the rookie, oh, I don't know what the right term is, high school, college draft, or is it more, do you do you continue with that projection work with once players are in have been signed in the system somewhere absolutely major league players minor league players amateur players you know even the major league players you think we have so much data on them um that it's not difficult anymore but even the projections that we're producing on major league players you'd be surprised even the best projections how high those standard errors are well the inherent standard error in the game is just so so large it's a binomial you know uh with uh, 600 at bats and uh pretty low p or and it's it's still a pretty high variance just ba- the basic in-game intrinsic variance but that's your perspective you're reacting as a very uh experienced statistician yeah. and i appreciate what scott's saying scott's saying look you'd think all the hard forecasting would be at the amateur level but it turns out even not even just minor league even major league players forecasting which is terrifically interesting for these teams making free agent signings for example i mean you would think you know you've seen a guy play five or six years they signing they know what they're getting oh man well and i mean i i assume kind of the challenge of the of projecting kind of changes over is different between the minor leagues and the major leagues. I mean, I assume, you know, minor leagues, it's hard to project actual performance because you just have less historical data. Major leagues, you've got a lot more historical data, but they're aging. And so a big part of kind of a projection is probably trying to model injury or like, you know, trying to model availability. And that's going to become harder as you get older. So it's kind of, you know, I think there's probably kind of inherent challenges to projection in either case. I think so many projection techniques are really about estimation, estimating how good is this player right now. Whereas when you talk about minor leaguers, you talk about college players, it's a different question, which is how good can this player be in the future? Now, Mm. Adi, you were talking about the irreducible error in those projections. And the, the point that really has surprised me throughout my career is even if you don't include the irreducible error and you just say, what's our standard error on the mean projection mm-hmm. for this player? I, you'd be surprised how big those standard, standard errors are, too. Well, give us, a, give us a sense of that. Give us some, some stat where you're just looking at the mean. You're basically saying some latent variable, some latent performance variable on, underneath here. What kind of range do you have around that for a major league player? I like what you're saying. You're saying, we're just trying to estimate how good they actually are. Despite right, yeah. everyone watching this player, it's still an estimate. Well, so of- let's give an example. For example, take someone like Aaron Judge. Last year, he had 62 home runs. That's uh, probably a, a high, a high, a, quite a high number on the, the luck side. I mean, we all probably would agree he had to have gotten substantially lucky. But what would you estimate as his mean, let's say just a don't uh, normalize out the number of at-bats. What would be the standard error on the expected number of home runs, on the expected number? Great. 
You know, it's funny. So often in the front office, we aren't thinking specifically about home runs, but we're thinking about the unit of, of runs and how home runs, doubles, singles, how those map up to runs. And so it's, it's harder for me to think about translating to home runs. But if you're talking you about a mean projection for um, for Aaron Judge, I wouldn't be shocked if your mean projection had a standard error of five home runs, which mm-hmm. is which is a lot. Right. If you start talking about two standard deviations in either direction from that, right. mean. 30 to 50, uh, probably in that range is where, where I would and, and you think that's kind of the standard error kind of across all equal, like where there's the same amount of, you, you, you're not baking in possibility of injury and just not playing a lot of games no, into that standard. That, that standard error, assuming he plays every game this season, it's still plus or minus five. Purely it's, the standard it's, error. It's not the predictive the distribution. Yeah. It's not the predictive distribution. Not the predictive distribution. Is, that's amazing. Yeah. So, so, so what that means is that there's a lot of opportunity to improve these projections. So tell me, well, hold just, on. Is, is that true? I mean, are we? Yes, that's 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 what I'm positing to the group. Okay. So and how do you do it? So let me give you. Let's take it more concrete. I'm going to overbear on the Yankees. Sorry, guys. But Yankees just, just promoted so Volpe, this move. this young shortstop, to be uh, and 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 based on a good spring. Is that useful? I mean, it, it always seemed to me that that just seemed to be kind of bullshitty. The guy hits 300 and a few home runs in spring. We're going to dump the uh, the projected starter for, for this you know 20-year-old kid or 19-year-old kid or whoever he old is. Surely is, that's partly developmentally based in some way. I don't know. It and just, the projected starter is not very good. Yeah, right. We're uh, Peraza. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but back to Scott. Of course, not really. Scott. <laughs> Scott, let's, let's Scott tell us let's what to do Let's not denigrate here. the Yankees anymore. <laughs> Sorry, I missed it. What was the question? Should you? I mean, do you get advantage? And what, what oh. you do with a young player like Volpe, where you've seen one year at Double A, one spring, and and is there any secret sauce in there? Right? Or are you just we're, looking we're, at the numbers? We're going to spring training stats are tough. Um, I've seen some research to show that there is a little bit of signal there, but the ratio of signal to noise is so much lower for spring training than it is for regular season performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that this decision probably is therefore more informed by just kind of scouting and the usual kind of things that we do with minor league baseball players, right? It's not – I assume it's not because of this. Like if he'd gone out and had a mediocre spring. He wouldn't be there at all. I mean that's the thing that – that's. I'm going to stand up and say that this is a stupid move. You know what I love about uh, working with a baseball team and how it contrasts with academic work is – how often you will focus on individual predictions. So you talk about Volpe, for example, I'm sure that the Yankees have a projection for that player. And the thing that floored me about working in a front office is how often you will focus on a single prediction from a model and talk about, is it high? Is it low? And in some ways that flies in the face of what you learn in statistics classes, right? Where it's all about, well, what is the, what is the average error from this, uh, from this model? And if you have a single outlier in terms of residual, well, that fits into some distribution and you don't spend a lot of time thinking about that individual data point. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's uh, that what you're saying is that, you know, uh, a front office might be getting overly excited about some player that they kind of point predict is going to be in like the 90th percentile of their position, whereas, you know, they might be better excited, better off getting excited about some player that maybe is only at the 70th percentile, but much more consistently so. You know, you, you've, got like, you've got to kind of balance like a mean prediction with how much variability or uncertainty you have in that. Somebody like Volpe maybe has a high, I think we'd call that a high ceiling, but, you know, because we just don't have enough data, maybe they would prefer 
whoever is next up, Peraza, I guess. Peraza, or, or... Peraza played last year. He, he right. So well, we've got we've got more you know. date on him, but lower ceiling. And so uh, you're yes, kind of yeah. like why not the Volpe play, why is why kind not, of like higher mean, lower well, why higher not buy, Why not buy the higher option and learn a little something? I mean, to me, he's he's a great candidate to play every day in the minors, and then also, don't you get time? Isn't that what happens to the the delay to, of the start so that they get six years of control when they're better? They bring yeah, them up yeah. now. And, They've you know. changed the rules a little bit on that, though. That seems to still be a mechanism. But it's, you're, you're right; it's like it's probably perhaps again better from Volpe's developmental process to be get, okay. Get I, right I, I want to say that I admire. Adi's ability to sneak Yankee like, yeah, sorry, therapy sneak. <laughs> as a long yeah, as so. a person who sneaks Longhorn therapy in here all the time, yeah. I'm totally impressed with what he did. Did but let's go back to the to Scott's position that he thinks that we can improve uh, the 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 certainty around our estimates of, of mean performance. So we were just given an example, like roughly thirty to fifty is our ninety fifth percent ninety five percent confidence interval for the number of home runs Aaron Judge will hit. Number. Expected, not the, <laughs> the expect that our 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 ninety five percent confidence around the expected number. And Scott's saying, oh, we can do better. So give us some examples of how we're getting better, how we could do better, how we think we're going to get better on these kinds of forecasts in baseball. I think it's an arms race to gather better information. You know, what kinds teams of can, you know, teams can certainly try harder with their statistical techniques, but at the end of the day, the biggest gains are going to be made with better information. Right. Across the league this year, um, you know, they're introducing Hawkeye high frame rate tracking data that's going to include limb tracking for the batter and pitcher. And I think that's going to give you a lot more information about what the batter is doing in the box versus simply what the outcome was of how he hit the ball. Okay, hold on, hold on. This is the kind of thing that we've had off field for a while, right? But now we're going to have it on field. Is that the difference? And actually tracking the bat on each swing. So instead of simply observing the ball was hit, this hard yeah. at that angle. Yeah. For example, on a swing and miss, now we actually know how much of the batter missed the ball by. Oh my goodness gracious. This sounds like fun. They're going to be showing us this real time in the game as well, presumably. But even this leaves a lot unanswered because, you know, you hear it all the time about how mental hitting is. And so much of what is actually happening when the batter takes a swing is happening between the ears, right? Yeah. And then he's firing his muscles to manipulate the bat into the part of the zone where he thinks the ball is going to be and there's a ton of I, I hypothetically right there's a ton of information neurologically in terms of what's going on there but that's not something that we're able to observe but scott can't I mean, to some extent you can observe it because it has to manifest in some way in what they do physically so for example one of the first things that jumps to mind for me is how does performance in a game compare to what we saw in a in a cage when he was wired up and they they tracked all the same stuff uh, you know, outside the game situation, some guys probably change quite a bit under pressure, and some guys, the best guys, presumably look the same as you go from practice to game. And you'll be able to make that comparison with this technology, yes? I agree. There's absolutely a path here. And this is an argument that I've had with others in the game at, at times about do we need to be collecting better data or do we need to be making better inferences from the data that we have? And you're saying, look, we can get better methodologies, but we're already doing pretty sophisticated methodologies. And what we really need to do is new data, different data, 
new technologies. It's a matter of it's a matter of which is the lower hanging fruit, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the better investment in terms of what's going to lead to better returns. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm of the mind that I would rather invest my time in collecting new and better data as opposed to investing my time in making better inferences from data, the, the data that we have. To the extent that it's a choice between those two. Okay, but look, one last thing on this: uh, when you say better inferences, there's two layers there. One is statistical inference, and the other is managerial decision making. And I assume you're talking mostly statistical inference. If you want to say, I don't want to give away the managerial decision making, because I'm guessing that's one of the most important things that can happen is that we can make better decisions based on the insights that we're getting, right? You're probably mostly Correct. talking was, about statistical I was inference. talking about statistical okay. inferences, okay. but you bring up an interesting point, which is that the skills that I learned in grad school in terms of statistics, statistical inferences, they are so different from this other type of skill that's so important in front offices, in Major League Baseball, in the NBA, et cetera, which is how do we actually make decisions based on the modeling that we've done? Yeah. And it's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's a different skill, I think, from you know the kind of skill that leads to publication in JQAS, the Journal of Quantitative Analysis of, of Sport, or, or a presentation at, uh, at Nessus, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Uh, but it's interesting because um, what, what, what the point you raised before, which, which is, relates to what goes on between the players' ears, that's a certain level of what I would call another level of irreducible variability, unless you believe you can forecast what kind of mental state the players are going to be in. So, for example, if you say Iron Judge is plus or minus 10 home runs off of, say, a mean of, say, 40, and then expected value, that the, the reason why we have that uncertainty could be because we just don't quite figure out what kind of hitter he is. We don't really know um, because we haven't seen enough data. Or we don't know what kind of hitter he will be because Aaron Judge has got stuff, but it's, it's his mind that makes him either mm-hmm. the high end of that or the low end of that. Um, um, I guess what I want is your opinion on is it is that something that we can ever find information on or is it just that just what makes the players change from year to year is they just have different approaches and there's their head matters which is I love that question and it's another one about which I've had arguments with uh, with colleagues in the past of like how much of the batter is irreducible error versus how much can we can we predict right and as as look as as statisticians we are very comfortable calling things irreducible error we're very comfortable saying that Mm -hmm. there's a coin flip involved Mm -hmm. here it has some probability p and and that's the best we can do but you know conversations i've had with people who have um you know grown up more in the game they're they're less comfortable with that idea and and they want to they want to force us to push our predictions p closer to zero or closer to one thus reducing that irreducible error do, do you think we as statisticians or analysts are too comfortable because on the one hand we can say yeah we we understand uncertainty better but is it is it a at some levels i sometimes feel we're kind of punting by just folding everything into error essentially it's, ah, irreducible error and you're saying the guys on the field, the guys in the building have to make decisions. They want us to, they push us. Are we just punting in some sense? Are we too, are we lazy that's, with that? That's something I've been reflecting on a lot this off season. And, you know, one of the guests that you had on, I think in January, Erica Thompson with the book Escape from Model Land has been really helpful for that. I, I was reflecting on, you know, my time with the Dodgers and uh, Andrew Friedman would always ask me this question about this player or that player, he'd ask me uh, to dig in on this player's projection or dig in on that player's projection. (laughs) And I hated that question because I didn't understand what he meant. You know, 
in, in statistics classes, you don't you don't dig into individual <laughs> predictions. You, you dig into to model diagnostics. Mm-hmm. But you know, after after having you know read Escape from Model and having reflected on it, I think I understand better now the where Andrew was coming from with that question because there is subjectivity involved in in creating these models. Um, and so, so uh, do it, Scott. Make that connection to Erica's work a little more concrete. Like, what what would you say you learned from that as it applies to what your general manager is asking you to do? So, what I learned from reading Erica's book, well, you know, learned learned is is the wrong word. What Erica's book yeah. reminded me yeah. and made me reflect on is that you know when you're when you're building these models, there's subjectivity involved in terms of the decision that decisions that you make, and the way that Dr. Thompson puts it is that you are necessarily making assumptions in model land that are not literally true about the work about the real world. So given that these assumptions are not literally true, you don't want to take the the predictions from your model and and treat them as the truth. There's a lot of subjectivity involved okay. um, in translating those predictions into decisions in the real world. Mm-hmm. 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 I guess I would well want to be particular c- concrete. I think the point you make is really, really good. And we in our classes never focus on one prediction. That's just how it works. And in fact, we actually have a theorem. It's one of the most important theorems in, in, in statistics. Um, it, it's often called Stein's paradox, have, having to do with the idea of shrinkage estimation. And when you're, if you're estimating, imagine you're estimating the home run rate of, of, of 10 baseball players, right? The, the technique that you would do is to treat them all as a group and then come up, and then come up each, with individual estimates and try to and – and you actually borrow information across each other. And that is the best thing, you, best estimate you can get in a, in a pretty broad sense. But you're saying that your, your best estimate for any given player is both a function of his data, but also something about the data of people like him. Yep, other people. That and, and but it's interesting because if you only you're trying to make the best estimate for just that player, and not collectively as a group, you would ignore the other players' information. Or another thing, to a, think, and it's it's very. In fact, it's a great article from the nineteen seventies written about about this paradox. And it's a funny bit because if you're trying to do the best for say estimation for the entire team, that's very different than if you were trying to do the best thing for that one player. Yeah, and I mean it's kind of I think linked to sort of sh- that, that sort of shrinkage concept. Also linked, we talk, and we're probably going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about kind of projections of how teams are going to do in the season. I, I looked at the kind of projected win totals from fan graphs or one of these things. And, you know, of course, you know, their their projected win totals for teams, like they never get higher than like, you know, 94, 94 or 95, 95 right. wins because you would never want to project a team much higher than that. You want to kind of shrink, you know, because you don't, for any one team, you would you don't want to necessarily bank on them being a 100-win team. That said, we probably are going to have at least one 100-win team. Oh, nearly 100% probably. You know, in this upcoming season. But our projections, because we're projecting the entire collection of teams, you want to kind of pull them in. And so going going back to players specifically, right, you produce projections for all of these players. Like Adi mentioned, you've got a collection of players. You're going to do some regression to the mean to share information across them. Uh, but now put yourself in the shoes of a front office in, say, New York. And you're looking at a roster in Chicago. And you see that there is a player that they have left off their 40 mat going into the offseason. And the question that the GM has for you is, should we, should we take this player in the Rule 5 draft? And should we, should we put this player on our active roster? 
Now you've made you've made a thousand projections for a thousand players across the minor leagues and major leagues, but it's the, it's this one prediction that the GM is asking you about, and condition on Chicago not protecting that player on their forty man roster, you know that that tells you that maybe this is more likely to be a prediction that you've gotten wrong. Maybe your residual on this prediction is 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 uh, more likely to be negative rather than zero. Yeah. Well, that forces you to inquire why you ended up with a say a higher score than the team that 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 released the player, and but the question that I have is is aren't you breaking the rules in some level of statistical analysis by like focusing on a one player and 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 what we do call special pleading or, or looking for uh, or cherry picking or snooping or I mean aren't you worried about that when you spend so much time worrying about one player? I definitely feel some cognitive dissonance trying to square these two ideas with each other. I mean, one way in which we could... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, that that was the challenge that I faced working in baseball front offices and having to, having to make these re- help, help make these real-world decisions. But that, that is the fundamental tension, right? Because they have to act on it. They have to make a judgment and a decision about an individual player, and we want them to consider analytics. And so it's our job, in some sense, to bridge this difference we think about it very differently but we have to help bridge that distance or else the tools aren't going to be useful and a parsimonious statisticians sorry yeah go ahead (laughs) oh sorry shane as as statisticians we have to have the humility to acknowledge that there is information that the decision makers are using to inform their opinion of a player that we just weren't able to fit into our model Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i kind of think you know one parsimonious way to kind of maybe draw more common ground here is, you know, when Andrew was telling you to kind of dig into that player, one interpretation would be dig into this specific player as a way of evaluating your model because this is a player that somehow, based on what what else we know or based on just my eye test, it doesn't seem like the model is adequately capturing that player. And that's obviously something by look. that is something that's allowed, you know, as far as, as far as like, as decisions, we want to kind of, you know, it's good training to kind of look at sort of look at your fitted model and see sort of what the what are the extreme predictions, which players are we kind of doing the worst for yep. or yep. the best for what tell you and, what, and what, get yep. into extra insight that way. Yep. Yep. Scott, listen, before we let you go, we want to hear a little bit about the new program at Rice. What are you guys doing down there? How broad is your mandate? You know, I'm really excited about it. Rice has introduced a sport analytics major this year. They do have one assistant professor of sport analytics already. That's Hua Gong. And I'll be joining uh, him, be three years behind him. But I'm, you know, I'm excited to come in and, and be able to do research in an academic tenure track setting where I'm allowed to focus on sports. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, I think as previous guests have spoken with you about on this podcast, that's a really rare opportunity in academia. So I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited for the opportunity to work with the talented Rice students with uh, with classes, new classes on baseball analytics, soccer analytics. I, I think there's just, I, I think it's going to be a really, really fun time. Mm-hmm. And what's an example of a research question you'll be pursuing um, on the research side of things? You know, like you said, sport analytics, it's so broad, you know, it's, it's tough to pick what is my angle of research going to be. And that's part of the reason I love listening to this podcast so much is because every single stretch of two hours that you all do, I feel like there are four or five ideas that one of you throws out there as something that could be that could be researched further. Um, I'll tell you one thing I'm really excited about is volleyball analytics, because, you know, I'm, I'm a volleyball player myself, I still played 
outdoors really, uh, really? stand wow. once a week. And, and so I, I listened to the podcast where you had Jesse Solter and Brian Hurler on, yep, yep. and I'm really excited about the, the data that are out there, the questions that haven't been um, asked and, and answered in a, in a peer-reviewed setting. Well, give Jesse a call. I'm sure the Rice folks won't mind if you do a little collaboration with the Longhorns. <laughs> There's Actually, the, there's the Texas reference. I, I, the vo- volleyball is totally undermined analytically. I mean, they, those guys. Are not, it's, it's you mean under underappreciated dash mind under dash mind. Yeah. They they, they um, are doing so many cool things, and it's uh, it's rich, and they've actually got serious people paying serious attention to it. And most of us don't know about that. So uh, we'll look forward to seeing what you do on the volleyball front. Uh, give us your expectations for the season or something, a storyline or something that you're interested in for the season as we roll into our opening day games on Thursday. You know, my relationship to baseball is changing as a result of not working inside the game for the first time in six years. And I'm excited about returning to my roots as a fan. I grew up as a White Sox fan, and I'm excited to try to watch more more White Sox games, partly because I'm just a huge fan of their TV play-by-play announcer, uh, Jason Benetti. I, I think he is terrific and, okay. and such a fun listen. What is it about him that's fun? You know, he, first of all, he does a great job of uh, incorporating advanced information. You know, he was the uh, he was the MC for uh, Sabre Seminar one year, uh, you oh, know, several really? years okay. ago. And he, he's just so entertaining. Um, you know, baseball, there's, there's, something, there's something unique about baseball in terms of the, the pace and the opportunity it presents to, to have interesting conversations. And I think that he, he, he makes it really entertaining, really, really engaging. Well, there you go. A little pitch for watching the White Sox. It's been a while since I we've had one of those around got- here. I got an MLB app. I'll listen to there it. There you go. You'll dial him up. That's great. Well, Scott, thanks for making time for us today. Wish you the best with your new venture down there in Houston. Thanks so much for having me. Scott Powers, Assistant Professor of Sports Analytics at Rice University, former Assistant GM with the Astros before that a few years with the Dodgers, helping run their, research, their famous research and analytics group, Scott Powers. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. For this segment, I am alone here in the studio as my colleagues Cade and Shane and Eric's been away for the whole session, had to take um, a a short absence. So it is my pleasure to uh, introduce to you uh, Dr. John Wary, um, who's actually been on our show before. He is still the director of the Institute for Immunology at our very own University of Pennsylvania. He's also the co-director of the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy and the chair of the Department of Systems Pharmacology and Translational Therapeutics. And among, I think, quite a bunch of other prestigious titles. Um, anyway, John, uh, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. It's great to have you uh, to talk um, medicine once again. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so um, one of the motivations for having you here is you, you, were, you were on in the past because for when COVID unfurled itself, on the world. Um, Our sports analytics show had to curtail. There was no sports. So we devoted ourselves for at least six months um, when there was no sports to talking exclusively about COVID data. So that was our angle. We would be statisticians talking about COVID data. 
Um, then when sports um, reemerged, we devoted about a half an hour of our show for about nearly two, two and a half years to COVID. And we haven't visited it at all in the last six months. And what I thought it would be great to do today is to um, visit some of the questions that have been bubbling up over the last six months um, that people have been talking about and that are some of them have been in the news. Some of the more political ones, while that might be interesting, I'm probably not going to address those, at least not 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 directly. I want to talk more about the scientific and medical um, uh, issues that, that have emerged. So I'm just going to be throwing out some questions at you. And, and um, you know, I kind of emerged into this field as a statistician. We, we have plenty to say about data. I actually worked with one of our other colleagues, David Fagenbaum, about re in repurposing medicine. So that was my scientific role in this. But I also wrote quite a few um, articles about COVID for the popular press. So I'm going to start off with, with, a, with our, probably the biggest success story on the medical side, which was the vaccines, right? Um, I think that was a great surprise. I mean, we, I remember when, when we were working on it, um, but I'm going to ask something more specific. So let's, so the mRNA vaccine, vaccine is, is the ones that I had. I don't know whether you had those. There are others, um, but this is what we know about them. And this is what we learned about them from the clinical trials. People are somewhat surprised to hear this. Um, we know that it prevents symptomatic infection, at least against that original strain. Um, we never knew from that original trial that it prevented transmission or, or infection at all, uh, just just asymptomatic infection. Later, we pretty much were nearly certain based on observational data that it seemed to prevent severe illness. Um, I think you probably agree with that. So my question is, uh, does the mRNA vaccines work better at preventing serious illness than some of the more conventional approaches that were developed by other countries or by the J&J, &J, for example? Yeah, so this is a great question. Um, I will say that, you know, we've all been surprised, one, at the successes and also humbled by what we didn't know and what we still don't know. So you know, there's a lot of learning still going on. And, uh, you know, I think there's been an expectation that we have all the answers at the beginning of the problem. And we don't. As scientists, we continue to learn and have to you know look at the data and and try to explain what the data mean. So the answer to your question is, uh, yes, these mRNA vaccines do an incredibly good job at preventing from severe disease. Um, that's one of the biggest benefits. Um, they probably do a, a, you know, a little bit less well at preventing sort of mild infections, right? So they, we, we all know that you've gotten the vaccine, you get COVID anyway. Yeah, you complain about it, but you complain about it from your couch sitting at home, not from an ICU bed. So this is really good. Um, I think, are they better than other vaccines? It's really, really hard to say. Respiratory infections are extremely difficult to prevent entirely. Now, we all get the yearly flu vaccine, or we should. Um, those yearly flu vaccines really prevent severe disease. They don't really prevent mild infections. And we don't know anything about that. People have never heard about this issue before, this difference between protecting from severe disease and protecting from mild infections. Because for no other infection have we ever looked as hard to see those mild infections that don't bring you to the doctor. We just happen to know about it now because we're all testing with these rapid antigen tests for SARS-CoV-2, which is great. It's new knowledge. But I think what we've learned over the past you know, two and a half years or so of, of having the vaccines around is that they're excellent to keep you out of the hospital, prevent severe disease. And the consequence of that is that we can get back to roughly our normal lives. They're not going to completely present, prevent any mild SARS-CoV-2 infection, but probably other vaccines don't do that either. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that, that you notice, for example, is that China and other and other Eastern European countries, are, they didn't even use the mRNA vaccines. 
Um, we don't know exactly how they fared because we can't really trust anything they tell us. I'm just going to be pretty blunt about that. But when China finally decided that its 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 multiple year strategy of lockdown wasn't going to work, it's zero COVID just couldn't work. They just exploded a country, country a, a vaccinated country, but not an mRNA vaccinated country. It, how did it do? Did it do? Uh, um, so that's a great point. Uh, China uh, China has made a, a number of poor decisions. I'll try to be polite. Uh, yeah. Poor decisions <laughs> about how to handle the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, you know the other vaccine platforms, and I, I want to be careful because there there are some. There's a whole range, right? Novavax um, is a yeah. really interesting vaccine platform that didn't get traction for the reasons. Uh, but then there's the the Chinese vaccine. There's an Indian vaccine. There's a Russian vaccine, all of which um, appear to be uh, less. Uh, effective, um, using that term in a, in a colloquial sense, not a scientific sense, than the mRNA vaccines which seem to do a, a, the best job of all of them preventing severe disease. So I think you're exactly right. The Chinese vaccine did not do as well at preventing yeah. severe disease. So let me ask a question now having to do with, um, well, two issues that kind of segue with each other. One is side effects, in particular for mRNA and how that that that, of course, varies by age. And I want to ask you specifically about that. Um, but that actually ties in with um, prior infection as a as a as a means of preventing serious illness in future infection. So uh, one of the things, one of the papers that came out post our ending regular discussion of COVID on our radio show was a, a paper which fairly convincingly documented that prior infection was as good as a vaccination at preventing serious illness. This is something that virologists like you and 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 just people who have been studying this even casually would thought to be true from the very beginning, but for the most part was was not something the public believed, and, and in fact it, it didn't really jive with the message that was being broadcast nationally. And I can even tell us at, at our own pen, uh, you couldn't be excused from getting the vaccine if you had had COVID. We just didn't allow that. Um, so my question is. Um, just to summarize that 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 is was that was that something we really did know accurately early on and 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 I guess if that's true and I think it is um why did we ignore that yeah yeah so let's start at the end of this this is a really important point so uh, prior infection certainly induces pretty strong immunity and like you said we now know from some pretty well controlled studies that prior infection is probably about as good, maybe slightly better, depending on what metrics you look at, but but let's call them the same as mRNA vaccination of preventing severe disease. Um, one reason, so, so first of all, first thing to say, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, when vaccines were first coming out, the risk associated with getting your immunity from infection versus getting your immunity from a vaccine was orders of magnitude different. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people died from getting their immunity from infection. And maybe a handful of people had severe adverse events from the vaccines, right? So the the, uh, the risk of infection as a source of immunity is very, very high compared to vaccination. Well, you have to be careful because that's not how I quite phrased it. I said, if you've already oh. had any infection, you were being still told to get vaccinated. So and that's a very different question. That is a different question. So that's right. And so one reason early on that that approach was taken is that we couldn't tell who had been infected and who hadn't. We couldn't tell whether you had immunity from infection or not. And at least in the healthcare setting, now universities, you could argue more broadly about student populations and risks and things, but in the healthcare setting, you are a risk to other people. And so in the healthcare setting, 
mandating that we are sure that you have immunity and are less likely to to bring disease into the hospital made a lot of sense. Um, We now have learned a lot since that time, and we can get into some of the nuances of that. But getting vaccinated after you've been infected, there is very little risk. There's there's no downside to that. Um, And so the uh, added risk that you're asking people to take by getting a vaccine after they've been infected is is essentially, you know, almost non-existent. So from a policy standpoint, if you can't tell who has immunity and who doesn't, we ask you to get vaccinated. Now, I think those policies outlived their usefulness, in my personal opinion. When we started to get to the point where we could tell who had been infected, um, there was a time to revise. And, and that's what you do as scientists and as policymakers. When new data comes out, we adjust and, and revise our approaches. And so should we still have that policy today? No, no, we don't need that today. In the interim, when we were trying to protect vulnerable populations, it was really important to try to limit the um, the risk that one person causes to another person, especially in the healthcare setting. So I'm going to push back on that slightly because sure. we never really, or maybe even strongly, we never really knew. We knew that it prevent the vaccine prevented symptomatic infection, but we didn't really know that it prevented you from transmitting it because you could transmit it asymptomatically. Yeah, um, no, I think we did know that, and I and I think this has gotten a lot of misrepresentation in the popular press lately. Yeah. So, do we tra- do we block transmission dramatically? Probably not. But what we do now, let's just say that you're vaccinated and you're asymptomatic. Yeah, that's right. Literally, what does the definition of that mean that you're not doing? You're not coughing. You're not sneezing. You're not expelling things out of your mouth and nose at a high velocity when other people are around. So by definition, if you're asymptomatic, your rate of transmission is lower. We also know from household studies that people are vaccinated in small studies, there's been some controversy around this, but there was enough evidence even at that time that if you were vaccinated, the likelihood of transmitting to other people in the house was lower. Now, it's not lower by like a hundredfold, but it's lower by several fold. So if you're integrating this over a healthcare system with 30,000 employees, you know, 500 or 700 beds in the hospital of all people or many people who are at high risk, do you want to reduce the chances of transmitting by some fraction? Absolutely. That saves lives. So the idea that vaccination or prior immunity does not reduce transmission is still a very confusing topic, but I think it's gotten misrepresented in the, in the popular press because there are a handful of studies that have looked at it in a slightly casual way, to be honest. Well, so, so I guess I'm going to ask, so I think that might have been true in the first strain, but um, I can tell you now that the, our vaccination and our immunity was to, to the previous strains, and now we keep getting, we keep getting infected with the later strains, uh, as someone who's gotten infected twice, yeah. um, um, and I'm sure, and in fact, I have uh, almost everyone I know has, has been infected at least once, and, and in fact, at this point, most people twice as well. Um, it seems to me that the, the, that the vaccine, all of us vaccinated, and it just giving it to people, even though we've been vaccinated, because the strain is, has varied, has made that original vaccination, while still protective and immunity, natural immunity, has pre- prevented us from getting seriously ill. I don't know anyone post-vaccination who had anything other than a very mild uh, case of, uh, uh, or at least comparatively mild case of an illness. Um, I don't. I don't think. I mean, when you said several factors, I would argue that it's it's in the in the small percentages at this point in terms of presenting preventing uh, transmission. I, I think, well, I think. I think now, and I think it depends on the setting that you're talking about, right? So if you go into a nursing home setting, 
Um, again, I use the example of coughing and, and, and sneezing and expelling yeah. a lot of material from, from where the infection is located. Um, in, you know, community dwelling uh, settings, you still are reducing transmission to some extent. I will certainly agree with you that we're in a very different landscape of this now than we were when vaccines were first rolled out. And you had to consider this issue of do we ask people to get vaccinated, even if they, you know, based on their personal reporting, said they were infected at some point. Um, You know, I think it's a very, very different equation. And so now um, I think if you've had a recent exposure, I'll call it either vaccination or infection um, within the last six months and maybe for healthy adults even longer, I don't think we need to worry about another booster and things like that. Right. People aren't going to end up in the hospital. It's really the over. 65 um, communities, people with uh, comorbidities or high risk conditions, basically compromised immune systems. But now I think, you know, you're right. Uh, We're seeing perhaps a a very, we're seeing very strong reduction in symptomatic, you know, severe symptomatic disease by vaccination or immunity. We're not seeing, or at least we can't quantify the reduction in transmission that we're seeing based on prior immunity. It's probably very small in the current setting. That's different than where we were in the fall of 2020 or early 2021. I, I guess what to get that very clear, what's happened is there's still people are operating that were in some settings and it's actually geographic. I mean, so you, I just came back from a trip to San Francisco. I feel like it was a time warp um, yeah. you know, and, and, and my, my son lives in Cambridge and that's a time warp um, there. And, and in the sense that they're still living in a, in a, in a, an environment where they believe that it's, important to check vaccinations. My, my son is a musician. He performed outside to a fully masked audience where people were asked to vaccinate where every average age was 25. And, and, I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, what is happening? And, and, and it, this just seems to me just you haven't adjusted to the, to the, the, new, age, the, new, the, the new reality. So I would completely agree with that. <laughs> At some point we, have to, we have to trust our immune systems, right? While at the same time, recognizing where that trust where that uh, where that breaks down, and so it so does. Where does it break? So so let me ask you. So one one I, I collected some some questions from my colleagues. One of the question is um, for so I have personally treat have treated COVID for a long time now as if it's just just like getting a cold. Um, I have no more fear of getting COVID than I would have getting a cold. Um, and uh, and that's be, and by the way, but in the beginning, I always thought of myself as a high risk person. I'm over fifty. I'm male. Those are two bad things. And at that time, I had a BMI over 30, and I'm proud to say publicly, I'm well lower than that now. Um, <laughs> um, and so I thought to myself, this is a disease I don't want, right? Um, and and um, But now after being vaccinated um, more than once uh, with a booster, I don't think that booster was probably that relevant, but I did have it, um, and lighter, and, um, and then and the current strains, et cetera, et cetera, I have essentially decided this is just a cold. Um, Obviously, other people might might have immuno um, issues that they might not want to think that way. But am I wrong? No, I don't think you are. And I think that this is this is part of the point of, you know, using science and data to evolve and improve your understanding of a situation and um, the recommendations, societal recommendations. Um, I will say we've been a little bit slow on that. And mm-hmm. I think that, that slowness has been because. We were shell-shocked with the 1,500, 2,000 deaths a day. Right. We were shell-shocked with the emergency room wards in Central Park outside Mount Sinai, right? So I think there's that um, 
conservativeness, not in the political sense, of course, in in getting ourselves to the next phase of this um, has been partly because of the amount of damage that was caused by not understanding the uh, the disease and not being able to treat it. I'm with you. As a scientist who has studied this for the entire pandemic, I'm with you. For me, you know, 51 and a half years old, you know, reasonably healthy. Uh, I'm not concerned for myself. I mask when I go into the hospital. I don't have any reason to, but if I went to a nursing home, I would mask, N95 mask, worried about, you know, possible transmitting to somebody who's immunocompromised. I recommend for everybody I know who has some some comorbidity or something that would put them at high risk to stay up to date with their vaccinations. So, so, so let me ask you a question. Uh, I, I can respond to two of those. I'll start with the second one, um, which is what are the uh, the comorbidities that are really functionally important? Because I've been hearing people talk about comorbidities, and I'm finding that it seems to be far greater than than I believe is actually scientifically justified. Like yeah. I'll throw out I throw I'll throw out one that I know is important. If you're actively treated for cancer, mm-hmm. you're, 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 that's a major problem. Uh, right. What would what are and uh, what are the others that really are justifiable? Yeah, so I think there are three classes, um, and I think you know cancer treatment is one for a variety of reasons, and it overlaps a little bit with the second one, which is immunocompromised. Now, you can be immunocompromised because of cancer treatment. You can also be frail because of cancer treatment and not you know, specifically immunocompromised. Transplant patients, there are a bunch of other diseases, um, autoimmune diseases, where you become immunocompromised because of the treatment uh, for that disease. Um, so cancer treatment, immunocompromised, and then I would say anybody else who is frail. And so frailty there are true definitions of frailty from a medical standpoint is also associated with old age. So, and this goes with every other respiratory virus we know about a flu infection or an RSV infection in, in one of us in our early fifties or so um, is very different than that same infection in a 92 year old who is bound to a wheelchair. It is just different no matter what other factors are going on. So those are really the three big ones. Um, you might want to consider, you know, very young infants as well or premature babies. Um, but but the burden of disease there is a lot a lot lower than in the other three categories I talked about. All right, so the other question I'm going to bring in, to, uh, push on a little bit is the masking issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's two, two things. There's masking policy and there's individual um, pr- practice. Yes. So I'll, I'll go to start with the individual practice right away. Um, because you talk about wearing an N95 in a certain kind of um, uh, setting, like a nursing home setting or a hospital setting where there are frail people around. Um, one of the things that you as a doctor are fully aware of is that a, a mask in order to function has to be properly fitted to your face. And uh, and I, I, I've, and I, I've actually talked to people. I've never had a mask properly fitted because I'm not a medical professional who deals with actual sick people. But the ones who have told me about this say that it's an actual process where they sh- you find the one that actually fits your face. I have a big face, big nose, um, and you know, and that I would have to find the right one. I'd have to have it fitted to make sure that it's not leaking and have to be worn properly. I will say that not in a single time throughout the entire COVID pandemic have I ever worn a mask properly, um, given that definition. And secondly, when I look around at my hundreds of students that I've that were wearing masks in class, they don't anymore, or in settings where I still see people wearing them quite regularly. I go to synagogue and, I, and there's one of the synagogues of the several that I go to where people wear them in fairly large numbers. I feel like I could stick my entire hand between their, their mask and their face. That's not a functioning mask. Um, so I'm going to stand up and say on an individual basis, if you're not wearing a mask properly, I mean, really properly, is there any benefit? 
Um, I, I will just say, uh, not every healthcare professional is is fitted. So way before the pandemic years ago, because of some work that we do with a completely unrelated virus, we have to get fitted in my lab for the right, right size N95 mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two sizes. You wear a small or a medium or a medium yeah. or a large, depending on where you are. They come in, they do a test. And you know what? It's not that hard to figure out without this thing, right. the test. It's not that hard to figure out which mask works. Most healthcare individuals in the healthcare setting don't go through this complicated fit test. Do you know how many healthcare professionals we had acquire COVID during early 2021 in the healthcare setting when they're wearing masks? Almost none. Masks work. Absolutely 100% they work. And it's not that hard to figure out whether the mask is fitting tightly around your face. Some words that we hear over and over again, a tight fitting mask. You know, that's not, you know, the mask down around your chin. That's not the mask, as you say, where you can stick your fingers down the side and your cheek. So I, I think that, um, again, from an individual standpoint, we'll get to policy in a second, which I have different opinions about. From an individual standpoint, masks can be very effective. There have been some studies that, again, made the popular press recently on meta-analyses of the effectiveness of masks that have been uh, very, very poorly designed studies that have sent the, the wrong message. Um, this is the equivalent, as you say, of, of like looking at uh, you know studies that just tell people go wear a mask and mixing those studies with studies where they actually make sure people are wearing masks properly. It's like, you know, taking a bag of apples to make applesauce. You know, if there are 10 good apples in there and two rotten ones, your applesauce is still going to be rotten. That's what happens with meta-analyses when there's a bad, poorly designed study mixed in with some good studies. It turns out that masks really do work. They prevent transmission for sure. And they also reduce your chance of getting infected. You're absolutely right. Only if worn properly. So if we're not, you know, in a classroom setting, uh, getting on an airplane, you know, I'm not sure that we can quantify whether masks are valuable or not. In the healthcare setting, in nursing home settings where you have vulnerable populations, there's still absolutely value to individuals wearing masks. So I, I'm going to then go ch- change it slightly, about, still on mask, um, but almost no country in the outside of the United States uh, implemented mass policies in children. Yeah, we did. And um, that seemed to be flying the face of anything. I mean, it, 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 it seemed to be carrying an idea way further than there was scientific merit. And it, at the same time, I'll speak economically. I'm a Wharton School business professor, I guess. Um, there's a cost to wearing a mask as well. And uh, when you're in school and, and, uh, and, and you're trying to learn and, and also in many settings that, uh, that where I feel like being able to connect with the people near you um, is severely limited when your face is covered. Um, do you, I mean, I, I felt like we took this idea that masks can help and prevent infection in certain limited cases where they're properly worn in healthcare settings. And we generalized that um, almost as a totem where this is what, what, this is what good people do, regardless of whether it's actually working. Yeah. So, you know, this this opens up, uh, you said you didn't want to get into some of the political issues. This opens up a whole can of worms of like, um, you know, places where we went, we went uh, astray during the pandemic. And I, I would say this is uh, that criticism is apolitical and it's equally uh, lobbed at both sides of the political aisle. Um, there are a variety of settings where uh, you had an inability to effectively mask and yet we insisted upon it, right? You know, how do you mask kids in a daycare setting? Yeah. Uh, or, you know, let's let's actually take early elementary school because the pressures there, you know, um, may have come uh, from uh, uh, places where 
there was a big lever to pull. And I'm not calling this out specifically or being critical, but teachers unions had a lot to do with, you know, masking kids uh, who effectively can't mask, right? Um, on the other side, uh, there are a number of settings where you have immunocompromised or you know, vulnerable kids going to school who are terrified of coming into the school where, where masks aren't being worn in the classroom. And you have sympathy, at least, you know, I have sympathy for that setting, that family, um, and, and, and those children, um, where there may not be an, you know, a perfect scenario for everybody. So I think, I think we may have, um, I think many of the strategies that we thought were a good idea outlived their usefulness or, you know, were taken to the sort of uniform application without, without having a way to be a little more nuanced about the best possible solution. There are a variety of reasons for that. Um, so I think I think masks in kids for as long as we did it had different negative consequences in a variety of settings. And they weren't all the same kinds of things. Young kids, you know, educational issues for sure. Um, older kids created a real bifurcation of, um, uh, you know, really political divide, even in teenagers uh, about these issues. And oh. so it became really, really detrimental, I think, to the ecosystem of education. Not that we shouldn't have been masking at some point at some age kids in some settings, but the risk in kids was a lot lower than, say, nursing home or, or um, hospitalized settings. Well, yeah, we also extrapolate. Now, I'm going to we, we're down to our final three minutes. So I just want to ask a, a couple of questions um, that are, are more, maybe more direct. Um, Paxlovid is still being recommended for mm -hmm. people over 50. And it's based on data that a, a, a randomized double blind control study on unvaccinated people. Right. Uh, what do you, th I, 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 when I got COVID for, I think the second time I was offered Paxlovid, I'm like, I'm not taking that. Um, and yet many people I know are taking it. What do you, what's the basis for recommending that for just people over 50, just blanket? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this get, gets to a couple things. I know we don't have much time, but doing the proper study and people who are vaccinated is just prohibitively expensive and logistically infeasible now. So we can't do the study that we need. It's just right. right? It, no one's going to pay for it and it's not going to be an easy study to do. So one reason why you're seeing Paxlovid still recommended is there is data that Paxlovid can reduce the likelihood of long COVID, right? And, and long COVID is a real issue. And we could talk some other time about defining it and, and what the real economic impact is, but, but it's, it's very large. So if it reduces your likelihood of long COVID by 50%, there are a number of people who I think want that. So should we have that as an option? Sure. If the risk benefit ratio there um, makes sense. I, th I think it's okay. There's there's very little downside. We have not seen dramatic Paxlovid resistance coming up yet. So I think the the downside of prescribing Paxlovid more broadly is very low. Uh, okay, that's a good answer. I, I only we only have two minutes left and I want to want to wrap up. So uh, my last question is we talked earlier about no downsides to vaccines. That's true for relatively speaking for someone our age, but um, I, I reacted very negatively when my son, who is in the early 20s bracket, was forced to take a, uh, to do a, a, a second booster shot. I thought that was unfair, un didn't provide any benefit on the positive side. And, and there's a small chance, but not insignificant, of, uh, of some sort of heart inflammation. Would you, was that, is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, well... I don't know. I think I think we are overreacting to, to a couple things uh, in in this sort of vaccine hesitancy or or sort of vaccine thought. We have too much information. I know we don't have much time, 
the the risk of myocarditis in that age bracket is lower than the severe adverse event rates for many other vaccines. It's very low. Um, it's also almost uniformly completely reversible, right? So it is it's a serious event. It's scary, but it does not cause long long term effects. The question, I think, the risk ba- uh, benefit thing here is: Are you talking about benefiting only the twenty year old, or are you talking about the potential benefit to others? The science has changed on this. The potential benefit of a third vaccine dose or a fourth vaccine dose for blocking transmission to others, very low. So I think we should be revising this. I don't think we need to be boosting 22-year-olds multiple times to prevent them getting other people sick. They can make the choice themselves if they want to protect themselves more. That's great. Um, uh, Anyway, John, I think we've come to our end of our 30 minutes. Thank you so much for joining us on Wharton Moneyball. And this has been the end of our third quarter. And we'll join you again after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We do two hours here every week. We're recording this week on Tuesday afternoon, as we usually do. But we're in studio. We're not often in studio. Maybe, I don't know, 10 or 12 weeks a year or something like that. We're on a stretch. We're enjoying it. Shane Jensen is here. Audie Weiner is here. This is Cade Massey. We've got open lines here in the fourth quarter coming out of our two interview segments, our two Guest segments, we covered a little COVID there. Q3, Adi on with John Weary, Dr. John Weary here at the University of Pennsylvania. Don't hit COVID that often, but there's a time and place to revisit. Here in the last quarter, we've got a few sports to cover. We have talked mostly baseball in the first half of the show. There are other things going on, notably March Madness. We are into the last week of March Madness. We have the final four, both on the men's side and the women's side. Men's side. I don't know how it felt. You all felt about the Elite Eight, but one of us didn't feel very good about the Elite Eight. Well, it's a cra- it was a complete craziness. It was so crazy that I've already won my pool. Oh, really? Yeah, because everyone was eliminated, and I just sort of limped in with just a couple. I had Connecticut <laughs> there you in the go. Side, Final Four, so but, there you go. Well, that, that, they are the they. I haven't have you seen the odds? We should get the betting odds because they've got to be the hands down. Yes. I mean, Miami could give them some run, presumably, but they, they're presumably the hands down. I'll get those odds if y'all want to chat for a second. Yeah, well, I mean, kind of obviously what we've seen, you know, it, it, depending on how you kind of measure it, it's one of the most surprising Final Fours of all time. It's certainly we were kind of discussing before the show. If you take that, like, sum of, sum of, some, the, of the sum, some of the remaining seeds, um, there's it's 23 this year, and that's kind of, I think that's the second highest of all time there was you know 20 i think it was 11 had a had a higher uh one you know a final four than that and this is the only time this is unprecedented it's the only time that the minimum of the seeds is four, it's four. yeah that's yeah, that's, that, what, that's like what's a top really three seed has not even made it right and so i can't that that says to me like again with that in mind is does that does this certain tournament feel like it actually has been just crazy surprising or is this an indictment of how they did the seating like did they just really screw up the seating i don't think there was much i, I think most people feel like the seating has gotten better and you know the, the last five or six years better than right. the previous generation of seatings they, they're more analytics based they've they use this net rating more extensively they used to use 
whatever it was, RPI, and mm-hmm. it just wasn't very good. So I think most people believe that the seating has gotten better. It's just when you don't have any of the supposedly, I guess, top 12 teams in the country so there's two, in the final four. Two, two possibilities, since that is unusual. One possibility is just chance. Yep. Um, and the other possibility is there's been some kind of structural change in the competitive nature of men's basketball. And that's college possible. Men's, college yeah, men's yeah. basketball. That's possible given the change with the transfer portal and NIL. It's yeah. entirely possible. But isn't it, it seems a little strange because, I mean, one observation that, that, I, that I read is that this year in the Final Four, there's only one player who is likely to be drafted. That seems that's amazing. amazingly low. <laughs> and, cr- and that's obviously a function of the teams that are here. Mm-hmm. But well, where are the remember, other 30? What, what, or there's, nine, two, or there's, two, there's two rounds. And so it's 60. Yeah. Some of those guys will be international. So yeah. it, I don't know how many, but you know, not, not a trivial amount. So maybe 40 college picks or something. Mm-hmm. So it's not that many. And remember, there are 300 Division One, more than 300 Division One programs. So there's a lot of players out there. But I always thought it's still surprising. basketball is a game that is very star-driven mm-hmm. because they, that's possible. Mm-hmm. And you'd expect, therefore, yep. at least one or two top teams with a star player to be here. Okay, but again, again Kate kind of presented the one sort of way in which maybe structurally this isn't just chance what we're seeing this year. And if there is kind of greater parity across, say, the top 60 teams in the country because of the transfer portal or whatever other dynamics, then maybe you, you're, I mean, you're still seeing top talent. The NBA is still very kind of top talent driven, but maybe those top talents are more uniformly Spread right among teams yes. at the college level, well, maybe I mean, hopefully at the NBA level eventually. There's one other factor that is ephemeral, and that is the COVID year. Mm. Players got athletes, college athletes got this extra year. If they were eligible during COVID, COVID the COVID year didn't count against them, even though they might have played a lot. And so it's just their choice. They have an option to stay. And so with redshirt, we've always had potential five-year guys because of redshirt plus COVID. We have potential six-year guys. And so we just get more seniority in this moment than we'll probably ever have again. And, you know, one of the urban legends, I don't know if it's true or not, but one of the legends about March Madness is that senior teams, senior heavy teams kind of outperform. Mm -hmm. And so if that's true, we've just got more senior heavy teams this year than we typically do. Yeah, I mean, if you think about what drives the victory in a basketball game, there's obviously individual talent, but there's also play style and practice and you see that the world cup the teams that play together all year round mm-hmm. often overperform relative to the quality of their play well and we said the same thing last week about the the world baseball classic that mm-hmm. the japanese team actually plays together for more for a longer period of time than the all-star team that the u.s pulls together so remember the stat we gave last week about the Sweet 16 teams, the number of transfer players in the rotations for those teams. So one, it varies. You had a team like Kansas State, all nine of their guys in the main rotation were transfers. And you had a Princeton, where none of their rotational guys were transfers. But the average across all 16 Sweet 16 teams was more than three in their rotation. More than three. So something like a third or so, maybe more of a rotation was transfer players. That's just categorically different than we've ever had before. The role NIL plays is that it just it keeps people around, at least on the margin, it keeps people around that might have 
gone on to the G League or they might have gone to Europe because they've played a few years. They're ready to start making some money. They're like, well, here's a way to make a little money. You're not going to make that much in Europe anyway, so maybe you'll stay in school a little longer. Do we have a, a sense of the size of these NIL agreements for your typical transfer player like these? Well, do we have a sense of them at all, much less for transfer players? And I don't think we really do. These are all private. Nobody knows what they are. They're not all private, but they're they're mostly private, yes. And so you every now and then you hear information about them. We hear more about college, I mean, more about football than on basketball. It's a great question, Nod. Um, it's still kind of shaking out as well because, especially in football, the players get these big promises. But it's not yet clear that they're going to get what they're promised. It's, it feels like these contracts that some professional sign where they advertise this big number, but then it turns out a smaller number is actually guaranteed. We'll see how many of these collectives can actually deliver on the promises they're making to these players to get them. So mostly we don't know is the short of it, but it's a great question. My sense that the, the, I'm going to go a bunch of five figure deals in NCAA men's basketball. I'm going to guess there's a bunch of five figures out there, which would, I think compete pretty well with Europe or the G League. So what role do you think does the growth of the three-point shot have to do with the upsets? Because obviously three-point shots are high variance, right? So to get three points, you lower chance, but more variance. So that means a, a weaker team can beat a, a stronger team if they decide to take that chance. And if they're all going to do that, you should see a lot of upheaval. It feels like yes, but over what period of time? So yeah, from I mean, the time I, I, that it was created 30 years ago or whatever yeah. to now, for sure. How much more do we have now than we had five or six years ago? And the other dynamic here, maybe I see what you guys think about this, is that, yeah, I mean, obviously I agree that, you know, more three-point shooting, three-point shooting is a highly, higher variable kind of team strategy to but align your team under. But let's say every team go, like, is it higher variance to have a mixture of different strategies out there versus every team doing like the high variance strategy of three point shooting? Like if every team kind of goes in the direction of three point shooting, maybe that kind of actually lowers the probability of upset because then you're just, you know, you, you, you're, you basically have, you know, a bunch of relatively identical teams just kind of. You know, go. Yep. The, the, you know, maybe maybe just defines what we even call an upset. Whereas I think a lot of the upsets we get, he, you know, it seems like a lot of the upsets I've seen in NCAA college basketball is more about just sort of like a particular kind of mismatched styles where you know, like you, uh, you know, the, this the, the this, game, this one loses to this eight seed or whatever like that. Just because, like, that one seed has a, a, a style that's mismatched with the eight seed, not yeah. necessarily. Just because the NCAA had, like, an unusual performance. So probably all these factors are in play. But I I definitely feel like we talked a lot about the transfer window in football season. And we kind of didn't talk about it enough in basketball, especially given that, as you said, Adi, it's not so much that even it's star-driven, but that a player can make a a bigger impact on a basketball team's performance than they can on a football team's performance just by dint of how they're a larger percentage of the roster. And... And in basketball, there's a little bit, a little bit more in independent play, presumably. Okay, so we got that. We got the final four coming down Saturday in men's side. Saturday finals on Monday. UConn, Miami on one side, San Diego State, and FAU. SDSU is a favorite, I think, by about a point and a half. On the other side, UConn's about a five point favorite over Miami. And UConn, either winner of that West Midwest match is going to be a big, still not a big, a big margin five. 
No, no, no. Anything could happen. Yeah. Anything could happen. Okay. What about other sports, fellas? What else? What's going on in hockey right now? Can we? What? What can we say about? Because how far along are we? We've only got like two weeks left. Like, le- that you close. know, less less than we're ba- basically nine or ten games for every single team. Okay. Now, so really, we're starting to, and that's kind of you know a lot of these kind of. Uh, unprecedented like historical runs either on a team or individual level are kind of getting down to the final wire i'll just kind of update yeah the bruins for example of course are still on pace for one of the greatest regular seasons ever they've played 73 games so they've only got you know nine left or whatever they're at 119 points 57 wins so what do they need to hit so basically they um the Tampa Bay uh lightning have the wins record basically at 62 so they need five wins in their last nine games to tie. They have to be favored to do that. Yeah. No, I mean, that would be, you know, they're projected to kind of get, they're projected to get to 64. Okay. And so, you know, they just have to get to 62. The point record is a little bit harder. They, they are at 119 points. They have to get to 132 points in the last nine games. So again, but if they do six or seven wins in the last nine games, they'll beat both those records. Wow. Okay. So that's a fun one. Do we have any idea about their the, the, the difficulty of their slate over those last nine games because that should be a factor yeah that should be a factor and i haven't actually i you know i'm sure somebody out there like 538s run that sim but i i have not but i i would have given the pace at which they're beating teams maybe it's less of a factor That's than true. it otherwise would That's be true. let's talk um, real quickly about playoff chances around the league sure in that division boston's in toronto's in toronto's yeah. having a, a new jersey is looking incredible so New Jersey's in the Metropolitan. They're looking good. Carolina's looking good. The Rangers are looking good. The Islanders, pretty good chances. I'm looking now at our forecast from our friend Micah McCurdy. Micah has a terrific Twitter account, and one of the things he does in his line of work is give forecasts, and this time of year he's giving playoff forecasts. Pittsburgh, 80% chance. Uh, there's, it's kind of binary. It's like your flames on the out west only have a 10% chance. Yeah. The, but it's it's kind of sorted. There's not a lot of drama. It looks like Washington is at seventy five percent. They're the closest one to kind yeah, of. Yeah, the there's middle. a lot of teams that kind of, you know the, with a couple weeks less. There's not a lot of people right on the cusp. I mean, obviously the seedings themselves make a huge difference. So mm-hmm. that's still to kind of be mm-hmm. sorted out. But out west too, worth mentioning, the Kraken are going to make the playoffs, or it looks highly likely to make the is playoffs. Is this only their second year? Yeah. Okay. Well, so well, how many teams cool. make the playoffs? Is it half? Uh, it's uh, yeah, sixteen okay. out of thirty. So I guess it's more than half. Touch more yeah. than half. Yeah, okay. that's right. Um, and uh, and you know, uh, one thing worth noting in the West, obviously, is that the Avalanche are surging and look are looking like the Stanley Cup, you know, a Stanley Cup favorite again this year. Now they've had a lot of injuries early on, so they've kind of they're they're coming together at the right time. So I think the out West they'll be a real threat too. Shane, what do you think of as a reasonable year over year average win probability? Stanley Cup win probability for the favorite team of the 16 entering the playoffs. Like the the average favorite at the start of the playoffs, what is their Stanley Cup probability? I wouldn't go much more than, you know, one one over 16. Uh, I know you're going to go higher yeah, than that. Yeah, yeah, no, I am going to go higher than that. 10%? That low? 12%? I don't know. So it's like, let's go like Mark I mean, this is again Oz, over most average, NHL seasons. Yeah, most yeah, yeah, NHL yeah, seasons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would have thought. I would have thought at least fifteen. It's still pretty uh, low. Fifteen's 
getting high pretty much. It's but because that's almost double. Yeah, 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 yeah. I go to a two times base on, okay. for the best teams. Okay. I mean, you don't. So I know this I mean, is not a representative I'll, season. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I can calculate that. You, you know, based on the historical data, we can look at that, right? Like how yeah. often the best team. Um, you know, wins. And again, well, I just I want to know the expectations. Yeah. To what extent has the market captured the Shane Jensen rule that especially with NHL, we're flipping coins. But also this season, we've got a few like standout teams. Yes, and that's right. They're going to come in much higher than base rate. They're going to come mm-hmm. in higher than double base rate. So I'm curious how that stands relative to historical. Yeah, and I don't actually know. I haven't looked at the standings enough to sort of say, like, besides, I mean, obviously Boston is just head and shoulders above everybody, but taking them out, whether there's actually more or less, dis- you know, kind of disparity among the top teams mm-hmm. than in a typical NHL season. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it, we could, two months from now, Boston could just kind of roll like they've been doing, and, you know, we're talking about how it was very predictable, but I, <laughs> no, no Bruins, every Bruins fan's thinking about that. Tampa Bay Lightning season, not just because they're about to break the Tampa Bay Lightning wins record, but because they lost. Having set right, that, yeah. t- having set that wins record, they lost in the first round. Mm-hmm. In the yeah, first right, round, right. they lost in the first round. What, what are the current odds of uh, the Bruins winning the the Stanley Cup? McCarty's, it's like you know, probably I would guess like no higher than like twenty. Okay, that's well, amazing. Yeah, all time best team, possibly twenty percent chance. Yeah. <laughs> I think well, I'm, I mean, I mean let's yes, say, we should guess at that number. I, I think 20 is good, and we can get McCurdy's number. We may have to, pay, have to pay for it. He has some stuff behind a paywall, but we should get it from my company. Well, yeah, and I guess I'm trying to think across sports whether you know what the you know, what what the equivalent would be. Like the well, und- and, undefeated and, Patriots team, would you have given them more than 20 percent chance to win the Super Bowl going to the playoffs? Well, to Probably. begin with, oh, there's, yes. there's fewer than 16 teams in the playoffs. So yeah, even and they get a buy. And there's more variance. And, I mean, we've more, talk, I mean we, sorry, less. We, we, talk, less. we talk about this. This is a this is one of our, our numbers we kick around. We probably ought to kick it around more. The average favorite at the beginning of the NFL playoffs probably has a win the Super Bowl probability of 30%, I'm going to guess. Yeah. But so that's, that's an average it. favorite. That's the right. Bruins are no average I agree. favorite. No, no, no. I, that's I agree. right. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. But okay. I, I wouldn't put them anywhere. I wouldn't put them anywhere above 20%, certainly. Mm-hmm. Even even though they are a historically great team. A couple other things just to kind of catch it, you know, because we have some historically great seasons on the individual level as well. Connor McDavid yeah. is on pace for, I mean, he's got 60 goals and 139, oh, sorry, 60 goals and 140 points in 74 games. On pace for 66 goals. 155 points over the season. If he does get to 155 points, that'll be a top 15 point scoring season all time. And he'll be the only person not named Gretzky or Lemieux in that top 15. So every single one of those other top 15s are Gretzky and Lemieux seasons. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Hold on. But are we arbitrarily choosing fifteen in order to include him? Because no, I mean that's said, a, well. That I I I can't. Talk yes, yes, we are for his projected one fi- projected point total. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's okay. right. Okay. And I mean, it's still going to be an incredibly good season by historical standards, even if he doesn't, you know, get get to one hundred and fifty five. But yep. it's just sort of worth noting. It's it's kind of crazy because you know one hundred and fifty five points. We're basically getting close to two points a season. But only Gretzky and Lemieux. Two points a game. Two points per game in mm-hmm. a season, and only Gretzky and Lemieux score have ever scored more than two points per game yeah, in, a, in, a, in a full season. Okay. And Gretzky scored over two hundred points several times, which is two and like over two and a half points in a game. Are there era adjustments to make for Gretzky or not? I have no idea. Yeah, no, and I mean it is kind of worth kind of giving some context. I did kind of look this up, you know, because you do kind of maybe want to norm by sort of the average points that are being, you know. Totaled. And I mean, Gretzky was 
head and shoulders above. But, you know, back in the 80s when Gretzky was doing his thing, it was more like four goals per game were being scored in the NHL. And now, and that went down to kind of a low in the early 2000s, about two and a half goals per game. And now it's up to like 3.2 or something like that. So we're we're not at the 80s level, but we're certainly at a... Some adjustment. Goal scoring has been trending upwards over the last 15 years. I would love to have McDavid's... 2022-23 2022-23 season in placed in the Gretzky distribution of seasons era adjusted. That yeah, would be and the Z the Z score for McDavid would not be positive. Uh, well, I mean, it would. Yeah, I mean, he would be still lower than I would guess. At least twelve seasons of Gretzky. Twelve even era yeah, adjusted. Yeah, even era adjusted. How many seasons did Gretzky play? Twenty something like that. I mean, this is why his point, like his overall <laughs> point totals. You know, he's kind of did the Brady thing where he was both. You know, really good really long. and also longevity-wise. Uh, it's anything. So one of the things about, about hockey, which I didn't appreciate until I went, um, shows you, shows you how much I 15 know. Fifteen minutes ago, you is, went is, for the first uh, time. No, is the is the is the lines and the switching? Yeah. Uh, has that changed over time, or did did guys like Gretzky play more or less than what they do now? Or? No, I mean, uh, I, I think in terms of like kind of playing minutes per game, I'd have to look at this, but I, I don't think it's that much different. I mean, they they basically, you know, I mean, there's always, you know, there was three to four lines back in the day and there's three yeah. to four lines now defensemen play a lot more there's only usually like two or three lines of defense versus forwards so defensemen play like a greater amount of time per game than forwards but i don't think yeah well, gretzky's playing time versus mcdavid's playing time probably pretty similar yeah. so there's no load management or complete game differentials it's no just, no yeah. mcdavid basically plays every game and plays kind I wonder of the why same there's amount. less load management in hockey than there it is seems in like it's basketball. brutal right yeah yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it's sort of... They play the same number of games in a season, like exactly, more or less. And it's really hard yeah. on... Is it maybe, maybe not should, hard I, on your joints because you're skating? Oh, it, it, I mean, I, I think it is all that type of... So I, I, I mean, I I guess... Um, have to look. Maybe, maybe maybe I should look more closely at kind of the playing time distribution to see if there's actually some right. subtle load management it, going on I, there. I, I it's, it's, not as, it, it's certainly not done. It would be done at the level of... You know, le- a few less minutes per game. This kind of like it's not as obvious because the basketball like load management is like you just you know LeBron Take, just won't play like twelve yeah. out of the eighty games or something like that. But, that, so. but it's fascinating that there is that difference between the sports. Yeah. I mean, it's only emerged in basketball. Why would it emerge in basketball in recent years and not emerge in hockey? It seems wise yeah. at some level in basketball, but why is that not? Why is it not the same in hockey? By the way, before we leave hockey. Especially since we have Adi, our intuitive odds <laughs> translator. I have the FanDuel and DraftKings odds for the Stanley Cup as of like today. And Boston's plus three eighty. So they're gonna be shorter they're gonna be shorter odds than we were thinking, I think. Yeah. What does three eighty give us in probability terms, Adi? Twenty two percent. Okay, so we're not that far. But, off. but yeah. you have to remember that's that. uh well with some VIG. Remember that's that's uh because of the VIG in there, so which way does it take us then? Um, they're giving you higher probability. Yeah, right. Okay. Second team, Colorado. You named it. Mm-hmm. Avs have been coming yeah. on. Third, Maple Leafs. <laughs> glad to see those guys. It's nice. It's nice. They're kind of flying below the radar. The last couple of years have come in high flying and then underperformed. Maybe it will help them to come in. Yeah, not- no, and it's worth noting uh, since Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner's uh, got there, I don't think they've missed the playoffs for like the last like six, seven, eight <laughs> seasons. Which again is is is. But it's a backhanded compliment when they haven't won a playoff no, series right. at the I mean, exact I don't same think, time. I don't think Maple Leafs fans are taking salt. I mean, they should. As a Flames fan, right. making the playoffs <laughs> eight years in a row, 
take that to the bank. But, right. you know, again, you obviously the Maple Leaf fans have historically bigger dreams. I th- I'm barely paying attention, but I believe they made some deadline trades that they don't usually make and brought in some more veteran guys. And maybe they're really aiming for the locker room playoff mentality that supposedly has yeah. been missing. The Leafs have been win now for... Eight years or something like that. <laughs> well, yeah. mate, well, it's fun. This is the hockey playoff hockey, man. There's nothing oh, like. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I cannot mean, the, wait. You know, my little my little analytics fantasy is to have player tracking on hockey, and we can see how different it is. Not only the playoffs, like overtime playoffs. It's just it's it's different. All right, guys, that has been four quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Two hours here on Business Radio for the whole team here. Uh, Eric Bradlow and his in absentia. Audie Weiner, who carried the load the whole way. Me and Shane Jensen, three quarters of the way. Deion Simpkins, associate boss fan, appreciate it. Matty D, thanks for all you do. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>